Today's episode of Concrete Credentials is presented by Aztec. Aztec offers the most comprehensive concrete product lines in the industry, which includes leading equipment brands Rexcon, Conico, and BMH Systems. Aztec is a full-service organization providing engineering, manufacturing, and installation services for our extensive line of portable and stationary concrete batch plants, mixers, material handling systems, and dust control. Hello, and welcome to today's installment of Concrete Credentials. I'm Greg Lewis, Chief Communications Officer with the National Ready Mix Concrete Association. And with me as our guest today is Dr. Gaurav Sant. Uh, Gaurav is a professor and the Pritzker Endowed Chair of Sustainability in the Samueli School of Engineering at the University of California, Los Angeles. He holds faculty appointments in the departments of Civil and Environmental Engineering, Materials Science and Engineering, and the California Nanosystems Institute. He is also the director of UCLA's Institute for Carbon Management, a cross-campus technology translation institute. Gaurav is the co-founder of Aquatic Inc., the grand prize winner of the Temasek Foundation's 2021 Livability Challenge, the co-founder of Concrete AI Incorporated and the founder of Carbon Built Incorporated, a grand prize winner of the NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize and a global top 10 innovation selected at the International Cool Earth Forum 2018. Gorev has served as an expert providing testimony to the U.S. Senate, U.S. House of Representatives, and the California State Senate, and also strategic consulting, core research and development, and innovation support to Fortune 500 corporations, government agencies, philanthropic foundations, and industry organizations across the world. Really delighted to have you here, Gaurav. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule to, to sit down with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Greg. So before we get started in earnest here, the sort of high-level question, I think, is the one that is the thing that you've been spending most of your time working on, and that's decarbonizing cement. You're, you've made a commitment to this in the research and the other work that you're doing. Can you, for the sake of our audience, just explain from your perspective what makes cement decarbonization so difficult? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. So before I go ahead, maybe the most important thing to mention is that this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. I'm a third generation civil engineer. And I think I've been really fortunate over the course of my career to really be able to see the difference that construction has made to people's lives and quality of life. Concrete, which is a mixture of cement, sand, stone, and water, forms the foundation of the world around us. And I think what makes cement decarbonization so hard is that it is indeed a foundational sector. And what that means is we've spent uh, the last 150 years building an enormous base for producing cement at really large scale and at really low cost around the world. Now, while we've succeeded in scaling the industrial enterprise remarkably, the production of cement is associated with a significant carbon dioxide emissions footprint, right? So give or take per, per ton of cement that we produce, we emit about a ton of carbon dioxide among friends. And what that means is for the four, four and a half billion tons of cement, we've got an industry that contributes somewhere between eight to 10% of global carbon dioxide emissions. Now, what makes cement decarbonization so hard is, A, this is a material that we cannot live without, and also, on account of the fact that this is a commoditized sector, it's really hard to absorb the cost of carbon management into cement itself. 
why this is classically an industry where, you know, as you produce cement, if the price of cement were to go up or the cost of cement were to go up, it's eventually something that reflects down into the consumer. We don't want the cost of construction to go up and we want to be able to construct at the same rate or a faster rate than we have as we support global development around the world, particularly in the global south. And what this all means is that we've got a material with an ever-increasing demand, but a substantial carbon dioxide footprint. And this is really where the challenge sets about. How do you really take these two sort of both really complex circumstances and, and make them come together to decarbonize cement? I think it's important to take a step back, however, and think about why cement decarbonization is difficult beyond looking at the, the macroeconomic sort of view, so to speak. What makes cement decarbonization difficult is the fact that you've got two kinds of emissions of CO2 associated with cement. One that's associated with fuel, that's, that's burning, as an example, fossil fuels to produce heat in a cement kiln, which runs at about 14 to 1500 degrees Celsius. And the second part is that we use limestone as a material feedstock. So limestone, the, the important thing about it is that it's the source of calcium oxide, which is what we make a calcium silicate cement with. But the challenge that you run into with limestone is that as you burn limestone in a really hot kiln, it emits CO2. So you've got process emissions and you've got fuel emissions. Now, this is really important because about 65% of your emissions are process emissions from limestone itself. About 35% of your emissions are from the combustion of fuels. This sets a really important framing, like, unlike lots of other industries, where decarbonizing the energy source decarbonizes the process. For cement production, decarbonizing energy, so providing even renewable heat, does not decarbonize cement production. I think this is one of the things that fundamentally sets the technical challenge of why cement decarbonization is so difficult. The, the next thing that comes about, which I think is, again, super important to consider, um, if you think about an average cement plant, you're producing about a million tons of cement per year at a plant. Amongst friends, you're emitting about a million tons of CO2. These are really large-scale, really well-integrated operations, and it's not sufficient to say we can make them more efficient. The new cement plants are running at what are known as the best available technologies at nearly the best available efficiencies. There's not really much to be there with efficiency improvements in the process. When you combine these issues of complexities in process and fuel emissions, scale, and manufacturing processes that are basically substantively optimized, you've got a really hard technical challenge. And I think that's what makes cement decarbonization so difficult. And probably so much fun to, for you to keep you busy in your lab and probably keep a whole team of people busy in your lab. I, I will ask you, what are the, from your vantage point, the different pathways for cement decarbonization and what are their relative advantages and disadvantages? Great question, Greg, right? So when we think, when I think about cement decarbonization, I think we want to think about it in a couple of different ways. I want to think about cement decarbonization at the site and scale of a cement plant. That's number one. Number two, you want to think about cement decarbonization that leads into concrete decarbonization that comes as you go down the supply chain and the value chain. These are both important things for us to be considering. They're both very different. They've got different profiles around technology. They've got different profiles around cost. They've got different profiles around degree of difficulty. I think fundamentally, we have to admit the basic circumstance, which is cement's carbon footprint is associated with cement production at the site and scale of a cement plant. And so you indeed can go down the supply chain as an example, right? As cement turns into concrete or cement turns into concrete product, and you can decarbonize. But the moment you democratize decarbonization going down the supply chain, it gets harder and harder, right? So there's a way that we can think about this. There's a reason why we produce a million tons of cement at a cement plant, if not more. We're trying to make the most of economies of scale, which allows us to bring down unit costs. 
Now, it is possible indeed that with certain pathways, particularly leading in a concrete, that you can indeed compress unit costs, but they require really sophisticated technology solutions um, that may or may not work all around the world. This is one of the comments. The, the next thing is, if you take a step back and ask, if I try to answer the question that was asked, what are indeed the advantages and disadvantages? I think the, the questions we need to really ask, rather than thinking about advantages and disadvantages, is to think about opportunity. When you do things at the site and scale of a cement plant, you're really focused on thinking about scale. What can you do with scale? As you go down the supply chain and you go from cement and concrete decarbonization, you start to think about what can I do in a democratized way, what sort of in a spatially broad-based manner in lots of different concrete plants as an example, right? So this is a classic example of a hub and spoke industry. You've got the cement plants, which are the hubs. You've got all of the concrete manufacturing, whether it's products or ready-mixed concrete, choose as you will, which is all of the spokes. You've got to think about what are the advantages and disadvantages as related to A, access to consumers, proximity to consumption sites, unit costs, scale, uh, which is really important, and what is the unit of CO2 reduction you can actually accomplish at each of these sites. If we think about different pathways, I think for a long time we spent an enormous amount of time thinking about carbon capture and geological storage for decarbonizing cement production at the site and scale of a cement plant. While I have absolutely no argument that CCS is technologically feasible and doable, I think there's some really pragmatic logistical issues that make geological storage really hard. In effect, you need cement plants to be located in the proximity of sequestration sites. You need substantial infrastructure. You need pipelines, compression stations, monitoring. You need lots of stuff that we've not yet built, and we have no experience in building. I think this is one of the things that makes cement decarbonization technically really challenging. Now, indeed, while it is true that if CCS worked and I had a magic wand and I could make CCS work like a charm, you could indeed use CCS, classical CCS, to decarbonize cement. I think the practical implementation of CCS for cement decarbonization is incredibly hard. Um, indeed, while there are cement plants that do exist that are really well located to sequestration sites, I think as a broad-based premise, I don't think this is really the answer. I think we want to try and look at this in a couple of different ways. I, I think we want to try and align on, on some aspects that are really related to what we produce, how we produce it, scale of production. And then we want to really think about what role does concrete decarbonization play. And so I'll, I'll stop there for now before we go on. This is fantastic. So obviously there are folks, smart folks all over the world working on related technologies and trying to solve this riddle. Which approaches do you think should be considered that have not been, at least to your uh, knowledge, uh, considered thus far? Great question, Greg. Right. So the, the first thing I want to really start with saying here is that I think we need to align on the idea that we will use a portfolio of solutions to decarbonize cement and concrete together. There is no one-size-fits-all, and I think we need to stop believing that there is a one-size-fits-all. It's not going to be one or two. It's probably going to be a number closer to five or 11, and I think that's the first thing to focus on. If I really think about the things that have perhaps not received enough attention, let me go back and try and look at the things that have received attention and explain why I think there are other things that need more attention. For a long time, we really focused on cement decarbonization and concrete decarbonization by reducing the cement content of a concrete. So it's the classical idea that you can replace cement by what are known as supplementary cementitious materials. And indeed, while that is an approach that reduces cement content, it does not decarbonize cement production. I think it's really important to align on this framing because you're not changing the carbon intensity of clinker as produced at a cement plant. While you are indeed smearing the carbon intensity of a cement over a broader user base of concrete, 
you're not decarbonizing cement production. This is really important to line on. Number two, while you can indeed, again, reduce the carbon intensity of the supplementary cementitious materials that you use by using things that are less carbon intensive than cement, this is, again, not cement decarbonization. I think correction around, around definition and terminology here, I think, is really important. And this is one aspect of it. The next thing that we need to really think about is what can we do that has not been done? Fundamentally, I think we need a line on the premise that we've used ordinary Portland cement for about 150 years. I think it's likely to be in our future for a long time to come. It's definitely in our present. And I think what that means is, so two questions around this. The first question is why, right? Why we use Portland cement? It's because we've learned how to produce it. We've learned how to use it. But I think a really important thing, which is not said here, is that we've gained an enormous amount of industrial comfort around the use of Portland cement as a material in practical construction applications. I think this is the reason why it will persevere for a long time to come and, and persist for a long time to come. And I think what we really need to focus on is two things. The first thing that I think we need to really focus on very actively is thinking about process transformations at the site and scale of a cement plant that actually start to decarbonize cement production. I think we need to start to focus on alternate ways by which we can secure a source of calcium oxide. I think that is fundamentally important. I think we need to think about chemical approaches that allow us not to emit CO2, as an example, as cement is being produced, where we can actually eliminate the release of CO2 during production itself by using feedstocks, as an example, that do not release CO2. And I think we need to think about decarbonizing the, the fuel source in a much more active way. So for a long time, we focused on things like fuel switching and going from a more carbon-intensive source to a less carbon-intensive fuel. And indeed, absolutely, every time we can switch from coal to natural gas, we should, eventually it all releases CO2, right? So we need to really start to work towards, I think, the, the broad-based integration of hydrogen into cement plants. I think this is a really important thing. I think hydrogen is going to be an important fuel vector for the future. And indeed, while there has been work done and there continue to be pilots, I think we need to think about what does large-scale deployment look like. Now, there's a couple of challenges that surround all of this, right? And particularly around fuels, there's, there's questions around supply, there's questions around logistics. Is enough hydrogen available? Where does it come from? What's the carbon intensity of hydrogen? What's the best way to use it in cement kiln? I, I think these are all important questions, but I think this is the driving direction we need to focus on. The last thing that we need to focus on, which I think is, is something that we've, again, not spent enough time on, is to really think about the most efficient ways in which we can use a produced quantity of cement. I think one of the missed opportunities really in the construction sector is that because cement is really cheap and the materials that we use are really cheap, we tend to use them in an inefficient way. And if you take simply the perspective of cost and say, I have to over-design to meet a criteria because I'm not sure how my materials behave, maybe this makes sense. But I think we can take a step back and particularly ask the question as a function of data and what data can do for you with thinking about data-driven efficiencies around how we use cement. If we can use cement more efficiently, that's actually really good. Because the old saying, as it goes, is the cheapest CO2 to abate is the CO2 that you do not emit. And so if there's anything that you can do about rationalizing how we use cement, which is really the, the approach that embodies concrete AI and the data-driven approach that they've taken to concrete optimization, I think this is something we want to focus on as well. Yeah, that optimization piece is critical, I think, and anything we can do, I think, to enhance that clearly is going to be part of part of the answer. It will need to be part of the answer. I, I want to, I don't know if splitting hairs is the right term, but I'm going to ask you a question that, that feels to me a little bit like, like splitting hairs, and, and that is cement decarbonization or concrete de decarbonization, right? 
Which of those results in better outcomes, or is there even an answer to that? Great question. Greg, I offer the perspective of one, which is myself, but here's where I will ground it. In general, if you want to make a difference, it's easiest to go to the source. And here's a way to think about it, right? If I had a magic wand, or if you had a magic wand, Greg, and we could wave it, and you could decarbonize cement at the source and at the site and at the scale of a cement plant, concrete decarbonization is now moot, right? And I think this is a really good framing to try and align on, right? The reason I think that we lead into thinking very hard about concrete decarbonization is because we have not yet learned how to decarbonize at the site and scale of a cement plant. But that is indeed the magic fruit that we wish the tree to bear, right? Um, that being the case, I want to focus on the fact that I'm by no means am I implying that we should not decarbonize concrete. We should decarbonize everything we can. But we need to really focus on the important thing here, which is eventually it's cement decarbonization that really matters. If cement were decarbonized, you would not need to decarbonize concrete. And I think that's the simplest framing to line on. Now, that being the case, and, and given the fact that cement decarbonization is unarguably an extremely hard problem, we've got to try everything that we can. Indeed, we should try and decarbonize around concrete. As an example, and just to be clear about this, we decided that this was an important area to work on as well. And so we, we spent a lot of time really working on the idea of carbon dioxide utilization and really integrating that into concrete production because we saw that there's a pathway that's near to the consumer, that's easily technologically developable and deployable. And so you go for everything that you can. But if you could take a step back and say, can you de decarbonize cement today? Then you wouldn't need to decarbonize concrete. Because we haven't done that, I think we've got to do all that it takes, but we need to absolutely keep our eyes on the ball with its cement decarbonization at scale that eventually matters to decarbonize the sector. I, I also think it's really important to focus on what cement means, right? And the, the, the definitions on cement seem to shift much more often than I would have imagined. Um, but when, I'm, when I refer to cement, I'm really referring to Portland cement clinker that's combined with gypsum, right? I'm not referring to cement where it's Portland cement clinker that's diluted as an example with a supplementary cementitious material. And I don't want to split hair about what is the clinker factor and whatever else. Eventually, this really comes down to what is the units of CO2 that are emitted to produce a unit of clinker that's then interground with gypsum. That, that's really what I want to focus on. Very deftly handled. Uh, I'm sure it will be appreciated by listeners from both PCA and the NRMCA. So thank you for thank you for handling that as well as you did. Why would you say at this point supply and demand creation are both critical for cement decarbonization? Great question, Greg. Right? So I think this is this classic chicken and egg question, right? And let's pose a couple of different sort of scenarios here because I think scenarios help us think about and analyze the circumstance at hand. I think a really important thing to focus on is, let's say that Greg is a developer. Greg wants to build the greenest building in the world. And he says, I want the lowest cost concrete and the lowest cost concrete products. And I want the lowest carbon intensity concrete and the lowest carbon intensity concrete products. Now, I think the fundamental challenge that Greg, the developer, is going to run into is that if he went out into the market and said, I want to procure at scale, this is actually really hard, right? In fact, while there are technologies and while there are indeed things that are coming online, as an example, one of our portfolio companies, Carbon Build, just turned on a commercial plant not very long ago to indeed sell you extremely ultra-low carbon concrete block, these things are all just coming about, right? So I think you have an issue here that fundamentally, if you really look around and scan the marketplace, there's not enough supply available. That's number one. In addition to a lack of supply, you don't have enough experience and enough awareness in the industry at large of what is indeed available. And so there's, a, there's an information gap. And so that information gap needs to close as well. 
And so when we think about supply, we want to think about supply of information. We want to think about supply of materials. Both matter. When we step back and we think about demand, we're in the very early stages of seeing things like buy clean come about, where you're going to have federal and state procurement guidelines that really start to think about incentivizing the use of materials that are not simply based on the L1, which is the lowest cost bid, but which are also based on the lowest carbon intensity of the materials that you use. Now, these things are very early, not yet fully mandated. Coming about, the rules will shake out in due course, and so you don't have enough demand yet as well. Why is that a problem? If you simply have technology, but technology does not have a demand, you can't create a finance stack to actually go out and finance the creation and expansion of supply. I think this is the challenge that you run into. When you also then go into an industry which has really a fixed production base that's already, in many cases, fully amortized, as an example, you're talking about the creation of new facilities to go out and produce these products. In some cases, you're talking about the retrofit of facilities to be able to produce low-carbon products. I think the challenge that you run into with all of this, in general, the one thing that all human beings, beings require is certainty. What we don't have yet is supply certainty, information certainty, and demand certainty. I think we really need to sequence the certainty really well so that developers and suppliers of technology know that there are well-established products. There is a home for these products. They will be procured at scale that allows finance to actually flow into the sector to be able to finance the creation and retrofit of facilities to be able to produce product. And this is what really then provides certainty and scale to the industry at large. So I think we need to really understand, and an important thing about the construction sector, I don't need to explain this to you, Greg, but I think a really important thing to understand is there's incredible fragmentation in both the supply chain and the value chain, which means you can't go to a single site as an example, fix things at that site and expect everything else gets fixed, right? Going from the materials producers to the material suppliers, to the architects, to the engineers, to the contractors, to the owners, you've got a massive series of split incentives amongst people. And when you think about split incentives, when you think about uncertainty, you're basically trying to solve a different problem for each individual. This makes it very hard, right? So I think one of the things that we really need, it's like I said, it comes back to really information certainty and it comes back to alignment around goal. I think we need to align on goals as, a, as an industry at large. And I think this will work. This is the single biggest thing that will help with both supply and demand creation. Listen, don't. I, I want to be clear. This is not academic treaties, right? I mean, this is not academic discourse. This is a very pragmatic view of what it takes. We should accept this is very hard. We should accept that we are looking to move a big ship. But you know what? Big ships do move. They just take a while. But you need to plan. You need to prepare and make sure that when you start to turn, there's enough space for you to be able to ex execute a pinpoint turn. It's fun to listen to somebody distill incredibly complex issues and priorities among different constituent groups and to bring all of that down to the basic scale that you did of everybody needing to work together to turn that ship in the right direction in a timely manner. I, I, I delight, delighted to have you spell that out the way that you did. For you personally, Gaurav, where are you focusing your efforts related to, to, to this, to, to cement or industrial decarbonization? And what are you, I, I, what I want to know is, what are you most excited about? Yeah, great question, Greg. And thanks, thanks for offering me a platform to say a little bit about my own, one of many interests, but something that's very near and dear to my heart. So I spent a lot of time over the last several years. Maybe we've got about a decade of work that's culminating now and coming together really nicely. But there are two things that, are, that I'm really focused on, right? So one is we've been really focused on developing these really interesting platforms that allow us to produce 
calcium oxide at scale and calcium hydroxide at scale without ever needing to emit CO2. This is something that we've been fundamentally interested in because it really goes back into process transformations at the site and scale of a cement plant. We're really focused on approaches that allow us to make use of all of the existing capex, all of the existing facilities that already exist at cement plants all around the world and without really requiring any conditionality around geological storage of CO2. So things that, that really are based on process transformations really excite me because what they do is they create a segue for the sector to go from where it is to a zero carbon future of tomorrow. I think this is fundamentally important. And so thinking about pathways that allow us to produce calcium hydroxide and calcium oxide at scale is something that sort of occupies my time and mine. And, and you know, I think we'll do so for the next half decade, if not for the next decade. We've also been simultaneously super interested in asking the question, if all else fails, what will we do? And this is why we've really focused very hard on thinking about approaches for the removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so you can mitigate the CO2 impact of cement production at a site that is different from the cement plant itself. I think both of these things matter, right? And you're trying to solve for two different problems in two different ways. One is, A, how do I mitigate, eliminate CO2 emissions at the site and scale of a cement plant? And then the second question, because it's always important to have a plan B, is if you fail at plan A, how do you really scale plan B? Where does that happen? And what's the lowest cost at which you can actually deliver it? I spend a lot of my time thinking about cost. I grew up in India. I've seen what development does in a matter of literally growing up. My grandfather built a large part of a city. My father built a large part of a state. I've been very fortunate to see the role that development plays in improving people's lives, improving access to infrastructure, improving access to facilities. And so one of the fundamental things that I do realize is that improvement cannot come with impoverishment. And what that really means is that we need to think about lowest cost, not for the sake of lowest cost, because lowest cost delivers not only affordability, but accessibility. The biggest part of construction that we're going to do going forward is really going to be in Asia and Africa. And this construction is only going to come about at the lowest cost. If we are clear about a mandate for decarbonization, we need to think about technology as the lever that allows us to really drive down costs and hit the low. Focusing on cost at scale is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. A good way to end, I think, our time together here is, is helping folks recognize that it does, at the end of the day, all come down to cost uh, if we're going to be successful. I think that puts a nice bow around it. I would like to say, Gaurav, I am very inspired by your work. I think those of us who have heard you speak before in different contexts have appreciated the way that you approach these projects and challenges as thoughtfully as you do. And I would just say thank you for joining us for such an insightful conversation. And I really do hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much, Greg. And I look forward to being in touch. We'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our Concrete Credentials podcast listeners. Please remember to subscribe to Concrete Credentials, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. We also strongly encourage your participation in this important conversation. Please reach out to us with your thoughts and feedback, as well as your suggestions for future content by emailing concretecredentials at nrmca.org. Thanks, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Today's episode of Concrete Credentials was presented by Aztec.